Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Dave King Engineering. Today we'll share a classic interview with Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour of today's program, but there's a lot of other news to cover. We will get to that. Also in the second hour, we'll talk about the uh, uh, the filmmaker who happens to be a, re- a Marine from the Iraq War era. Uh, the biblical drama, His Only Son, out in theaters this Holy Week. We'll talk about that coming up in the uh, 5 o'clock hour as well. But first, a look at, well, the news. Well, masks have been mandatory, as you well know, in health settings since August of 2021. The, but the requirement was uh, lifted today, April the 3rd. Uh, the mask mandate will be lifted for workers, patients, visitors in healthcare settings such as hospitals, mobile clinics, Ambulances, outpatient facilities, dental offices, urgent care centers, counseling offices, school-based health centers, complementary and alternative medicine locations. Some health care settings may continue to require masks even after the requirement is lifted, but that's on them, not the state mandating it. Well, OHA says that um, uh, people at higher risk for severe disease or who live with someone at higher risk should still consider wearing masks in health care or uh, other settings um, to better protect themselves and those most vulnerable around them. But this mandate uh, ends, uh, ended today in Oregon and Washington. Wow, it's good news. Well, the Oregon Department of Administrative Services today announced the, it's planning to end reimbursement standards for remote work that were established during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. The reinstated policy, which comes at the direction of Governor Tina Kotek, will end the pandemic-era practice of reimbursing employees who work remotely, including those who work out of state to travel to their offices in Oregon. Well, under the revised policy that returns to Oregon's remote work guidelines pre-pandemic, state employees will continue to be allowed to work remotely as approved by the uh, their, their agencies. However, remote employees will no longer be reimbursed Uh, for commuting to the office. The policy will go into effect September 1st of this year, which will uh, enable DAS to properly prepare and provide notice to employees about changes to the remote work policy around reimbursement. We must ensure that state resources are used effectively to serve Oregonians and that our policies reflect the evolving needs of our workforce and the public. So says Chief Operating Officer and Interim Director of the Department of Administrative Services, Barry Leslie. Employees will continue to be allowed to work remotely as approved by their state agencies. We look forward to implementing this change and continuing to refine our policies to meet the needs of our state employees. Again, the deadline for that, September 1st. Well, New York Mayor Eric Adams joined the um, NYPD Commissioner 
Sewell or Sewell or something very like that. They hosted a briefing on Monday regarding security preparations ahead of former President Donald Trump's arraignment for tomorrow, stressing that as of midday Monday, there's been no specific credible threats to our city at this time and everyday life should continue as normal. Control yourself, the um, yourselves, the uh, mayor warned at City Hall, recognizing anticipated protests and the unique nature of the situation. Unprecedented, I think, is the word that would apply. New York City is our home, not a playground for your misplaced anger. He went on to say we are the safest large city in America because we respect the rule of law in New York City. I'm sorry, I had to pass to uh, just pause for a moment to uh, consider that we are the safest what do you say? The safest large city in America, New York City. Hmm. He went on. And although we have no specific threats, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are known to spread misinformation and hate speech, says she's coming to town. And while you in town um, be on your best behavior, uh, as always, we will not allow violence or vandalism of any kind. And if uh, one is um, caught participating in an act of violence, they will be arrested and held accountable no matter who you are. Now, this uh, emphasis on law and order is a good thing. That has not always been the case in this safest large city in America uh, that the mayor is now referencing. Addressing uh, reporters said a press briefing. The mayor warned prospective protesters that disorder and lawlessness will not be tolerated uh, and went on again to say, control yourselves. Well, former President Trump was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury Last Thursday, after a years long investigation led by Manhattan district attorneys um, uh, in that area. Well, the former president of the United States and the leading Republican candidate for the White House in 2024 was charged Thursday after weeks of speculation on whether Manhattan district attorney Alvin Bragg would seek to indict him related to hush money payments made before the 2016 presidential election. Now, this is the weaker of the series of cases that are likely to uh, be brought against the president in the coming days. But his presidency was uh, clouded by investigations. Several probed whether he colluded with Russia to influence the 2016 election. Some focused on his finances. Others led to uh, impeachment, making him the first president in the United States to have been impeached twice. Well, the president's post-presidential life is reminiscent of his days in the Oval Office, marred by probes, which the former president and his allies say are all just part of an effort by his political opponents to derail his 2024 presidential aspirations. Well, Trump was indicted, as mentioned earlier, on the 30th of last month after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office years-long investigation, possibly for hush money payments, uh, was brought into clear relief. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has been investigating the former president for hush money payments uh, for quite some time. Well, these include a $130,000 payment made to um, a film actress and $150,000 payments made to a former Playboy model that the president has denied. Uh, the former president. Hush money payments made to uh, each individual. These two women were revealed and reported back in 2018. The payments had been investigated by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York and by the Federal Elections Commission. Federal prosecutors in the Southern District of uh, New York opted out of charging the former president related to the Stormy Daniels payments in 2019, even as Cohen implicated him as part of his plea deal. 
The Federal Election Commission also tossed its investigation into the matter in 2021. And of all the cases that have been that are pending against the president, this is considered by most to be the weakest and maybe a bit frustrating to those who believe they have stronger cases to bring the former president down. Well, the charges stem from the um, alleged hush money, hush money payments that the president, um, through his lawyer Michael Cohen, made to uh, not one, but two individuals. We'll continue to talk a bit about what this case is all about and the others that are pending in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just talking about uh, some of the investigations surrounding the former president as he faces an arraignment tomorrow in New York City. They're already warning that this is going to be a an event and that protesters should assemble peacefully. The mayor is prepared to do what he uh, says will be necessary should uh, there be lawbreakers among them. We've been talking about the uh, special, uh, I should say, the arraignment that's coming up. But there's also the special counsel investigation into classified records at Mar-a-Lago. Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Jack Smith, a Department of Justice official, as special counsel And he's investigating the former president's alleged improper retention of classified records from his presidency at his Mar-a-Lago home. Now, Smith has also taken over the Justice Department's investigation into the Capitol riot on January 6th, specifically whether Trump or other officials and entities interfered with the peaceful transfer of power following the presidential election in 2020, including the certification of the Electoral College vote in January. President Biden is also currently under special counsel investigation for his alleged improper retention of classified records from the Obama administration. Former Vice President Pence also had classified records at his home, a matter under review by the Justice Department. Well, the appointment of a special counsel in the matter comes after the FBI in August in an unprecedented move. They raided the former president's private residence at Mar-a-Lago. Now, this president... um, is characterized by the unprecedented, but this was in connection with an investigation into classified records the former president allegedly took with him from the White House. The raid was related to the National Archives and Records Administration, which said earlier this year that the former president took 15 boxes of presidential records to his personal residence. Well, those boxes allegedly contained classified national security information and official correspondence between Trump and foreign heads of state. The NARA notified Congress in February that the agency recovered the 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago and identified items marked as classified national security information within those boxes. The matter was referred to the Justice Department. Well, Trump uh, earlier this year said the National Archives did not find the documents, but that They were given upon request. Sources close to the former president said he had been cooperating and there was no need for the raid. Classified material that was reportedly confiscated by the FBI during the raid included a letter to Trump from former President Obama, the letter from Kim Jong-un, a birthday dinner menu and a cocktail napkin. I'm certain there were other more incendiary items as well, but we don't know what they are. Then there are the former president's tax returns. Well, last year, a federal appeals court paved the way for the House of Ways and Means Committee to finally obtain Trump's tax returns from the Internal Revenue Service, something the panel had been trying to obtain since 2019 under a law that permits the disclosure of an individual's tax returns to the Congressional Committee. Well, the former president sought emergency intervention measures from the Supreme Court in an attempt to temporarily block any release of these tax records, but was denied. Democrats in December of last year released a report on his tax returns. 
The committee claimed that the IRS failed to audit Trump effectively while he was in office. However, there was no evidence of um, collusion between the Trump administration and the IRS, nor are there any records of the former president pushing back against reviews of his tax information. Then there's the civil investigation into the Trump organization. New York Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, has been investigating Trump since she took office in January 2019. And I should mention the uh, the case that involves the uh, uh, arraignment that's coming up tomorrow was a campaign promise from the uh, state attorney um That is overseeing this case, Mr. Bragg. Well, James brought a lawsuit against Trump in September, alleging he and his company misled banks and others about the value of his assets. She claimed that Trump and his children, Donald, Ivanka and Eric, as well as his associates and um, businesses, allegedly committed numerous acts of fraud and misrepresentation regarding financial statements. James alleged Trump inflated his net worth by billions of dollars and said his children helped him to do so. Well, over the summer, he appeared in downtown New York City for his deposition before the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. James' office has been conducting a civil investigation into the Trump organization to find out whether Trump and his company improperly inflated the value of assets on financial statements in order to obtain loans and tax benefits. Uh, I did nothing wrong, the president says, the former president, which is why after five years of looking, the federal, state and local governments together with the fake news media have found nothing. That case is still pending. And then there's another, the FBI's crossfire hurricane probe. When former President Trump took office in January of 2017, the FBI was in the middle of conducting counterintelligence investigation into whether candidate Donald Trump and members of his campaign were colluding or coordinating with Russia to influence the 2016 election. Well, that investigation was referred to uh, inside the bureau as Crossfire Hurricane. It began in July of 2016. Well, that investigation was opened um, despite the CIA, then CIA director John Brennan briefing then President Obama on July of um, 2016 about a purported proposal from one Hillary Clinton campaign foreign policy advisor to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian Security Service, end quote. Well, in September of that year, the CIA properly forwarded that information through a counterintelligence operational lead to then-FBI Director James Comey and then-Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence Peter Strzok with subject line Crossfire Hurricane. Well, the um, it was obtained and reported on that the CIOL, that's the Counterintelligence Operational Lead, Uh, which stated the following information is provided for the exclusive use of your bureau for background investigation, action, or lead purposes as appropriate. An exchange, and then some was redacted, discussing U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan concerning U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russian uh, hackers hampering U.S. elections as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. It's unclear how the FBI handled that memo. That's much of the story we now know. Well, after Trump's victory and during the presidential transition period, Comey briefed Trump on the now infamous anti-Trump dossier containing salacious allegations of purported coordination between he and the Russian government. It was authored by Christopher Steele, an ex-British intelligence officer. Well, the Department of Justice inspector general later revealed that the unverified Dossier helped serve as the basis for controversial Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants obtained against the former president. 
Uh, Trump, in May of 2017, fired then-FBI Director James Comey. Comey, during his um, 2017 testimony to Congress, said he deliberately leaked a memo from a key meeting with Trump to a friend after he was fired in order to prompt the appointment of a special counsel. He was successful in that regard. I asked a friend of mine to... Uh, share the content of the memo with a reporter. I thought that might prompt the appointment of a special counsel, Comey testified. And then there's the Mueller investigation and report. Days after Comer, uh, Comey rather was fired, Rosenstein appointed special counsel Robert Mueller to take over the FBI Trump-Russia probe. The investigation clouded the Trump administration for nearly two years, simultaneously investigating into um, Trump uh, Russia allegations was launched on Capitol Hill in both chambers of Congress. The House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Intelligence Committee opened investigations into whether Trump and members of his campaign colluded with Russia. Well, as we know, the investigation determined that there was no collusion, although you'd be hard-pressed to find that in bold print, as the story, after so many years, was barely uh, repeated. Then there's the investigation led by House Democrats in March of 2019. The Judiciary Committee chairman, Jared Nadler, he announced a wide ranging uh, uh, procedure, almost every uh, uh, looking into probing into almost every aspect of Trump's administration, uh, his business ventures, um, his family dealings and so on, subpoenaing more than 81 individuals and entities to investigate alleged obstruction of justice, public corruption, and other abuses of power by President Trump. Now, interestingly, there's no interest in the Biden family because it seems entirely inappropriate under the new standard to look into his family, but that was not the case in 2019. Nadler wasn't alone. A number of other House panels also stepped up inquiries. The House Foreign Affairs Committee, which chaired, uh, was chaired at the time by Elliot Engel, a Democrat from New York, and others. The House Intelligence Committee chairman, Adam Schiff, uh, and so on. These are just some of the investigations that um, the, pres- the former president has faced, some of which he will face in the future and perhaps have more serious implications than the arraignment that he will be engaged in tomorrow afternoon, Eastern Time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a classic interview with Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll also talk about the uh, Marine whose first film, His Only Son, is out this Holy Week. Tell you more about him and that film. We're talking about some of the investigations surrounding the former president, among them the COVID-19 accusations. Well, this started weeks after Trump's first acquittal in March of 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic rocked the world, shutting down the U.S. economy, global markets with millions of people around the world contracting the novel coronavirus. Well, the president was accused through um, throughout uh, the uh, uh, the season for not taking the virus seriously. Uh, Democratic senators, including now Vice uh, President Kamala Harris, called for an investigation into the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they also said they would create a 911-style commission to probe his response. The Trump administration, though, launched Operation Warp Speed, a public-private partnership to create vaccines against the novel virus as the pandemic raged in 2020. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration, under this administration, approved emergency use authorizations for the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna 
COVID-19 vaccines. Trump in December of 2020 signed an executive order that would ensure all Americans had access to the uh, the vaccine before the U.S. government could start uh, aiding nations around the world. But yet another investigation. Then there was the Russian bounties to kill U.S. troops in another congressional probe during the pandemic. Uh, Trump was hammered by uh, his opponents over when he was briefed and um, his response to Moscow related to intelligence that Russia offered bounties to Taliban-linked militants to kill U.S. troops. A year later, during the Biden administration, officials admitted that intelligence was unverified. Then there's the 2020 presidential election. I won't go into all of that, but throughout the year, Trump was also criticized for questioning the security of the upcoming presidential election. The January 6th riot and the second impeachment, which, again, I don't need to... Uh, rehearse. There's the Fulton County, Georgia 2020 election investigation that uh, could, in fact, land the former president in um, in court in Georgia. In early 21 prosecutors in Fulton County, they opened a criminal investigation into the president's alleged effort to overturn the presidential election in the state, including his phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Bragg uh, Raffensperger, in which um, Trump suggested the Republicans find enough votes to change the results. A special grand jury last month released portions of a report detailing its findings in the investigation last month. The report indicated a major um, uh, a majority of the grand jury believes that one or more witnesses may have committed perjury in their testimony and recommends that prosecutors pursue indictments against them if the district attorney finds the evidence compelling. So that's yet another investigation that is pending. Trump's campaign spokesman. Uh, said that the uh, report does not even mention Trump's name and has nothing to do with the president because President Trump did absolutely nothing wrong, end quote. He went on to say the president participated in two perfect phone calls regarding election integrity in Georgia, which he is entitled to do. In fact, as president, it was President Trump's constitutional duty to ensure election safety. And he added, President Trump will always keep fighting for true and honest elections in America. But that's sort of the laundry list in um, in brief of the investigations that have taken place around the previous administration and that are pending in the post-Trump era while he is uh, a candidate for the 2024 presidential election. Well, in other news, and speaking of the presidential election, the former governor of Arkansas, Asa, Asa Hutchinson, has announced his intentions to run for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. I've made a decision, and my decision is I'm going to run for president of the United States, he said, speaking on ABC News. While the formal announcement will be later in April in Bentonville, Arkansas, I want to make it clear to you I am going to be running. And the reason is I've traveled the country for six months. I hear people talk about the leadership of our country. I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts, end quote. Hutchinson announced uh, his announcement rather comes on the heels of the former president's indictment by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, which prompted the former governor to uh, come uh, to the former president's defense. He said it is a dark day for America when a former president is indicted on criminal charges, he wrote in an official statement. However, Hutchinson also managed to throw a, a jab, insisting that it is essential that the decision of America's next president be made at the ballot box and not in the court system. Donald Trump should not be the next president, but that should be decided by the voters. Hutchinson joins a growing field of Republican hopefuls, including Trump, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, and tech entrepreneur uh, Vivek uh, Ramswamy. 
The Chinese spy balloon that intruded into U.S. airspace successfully collected intelligence from sensitive military sites as the Biden administration deliberately uh, deliberated rather for several days before shooting it down off the Carolina coast. Well, the balloon was steered over and note the word steered. We now confirm that over some military locations multiple times flying in figure eight formation to gather information, to gather data to send back to Beijing in real time Two current senior U.S. Um, officials and one former senior administration official told CNBC. However, the Biden administration shifted around some potential targets and prevented them from broadcasting or emitting signals to be intercepted by the airship, reducing the amount of intelligence that was ultimately exported back to China, the officials said. Well, the balloon began its journey in Alaska on Saturday, the 28th of January, and then moved south over the continental U.S., There are nine U.S. military bases in Alaska conducting missions, including air defense, missile launch detection, weapons testing, air patrols, and training. Four days after entering U.S. airspace, the balloon was hovering over Maelstrom Air Force Base in Montana, which housed nuclear weapons systems, including intercontinental ballistic uh, ballistic missiles. Civilians first spotted the balloon on Wednesday, February 1st, floating over the base. The Pentagon initially decided not to publicize the Chinese incursion so as not to jeopardize uh, Secretary of State Blinken's forthcoming trip to Beijing. After the balloon began generating national media attention, however, the State Department postponed the secretary's visit, though that decision was not made until Friday, hours before Blinken was scheduled to depart. Several Republican lawmakers uh, demanded the balloon be downed upon its discovery, but the military opted not to shoot it down until it had drifted over the Atlantic to avoid civilian casualties and properly Uh, property damage. China deployed the balloon as part of a larger surveillance program run by the People's Liberation Army that's collected confidential information from multiple countries. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder confirmed in February that four balloons, later identified as Chinese in origin, had traveled over U.S. territory during the previous administration. However, some were detected years later under the Biden administration, revealing a Domain awareness gap in U.S. military surveillance, according to General Glenn Van Herk, the commander of North American Aerospace Defense Command and U.S. Northern Command. Well, since the scandal, China has maintained that the balloon was a civilian research craft that was blown off course. We now know that not to be the case. Well, the Social Security trustee released their annual report on Friday, noting significant deterioration in Social Security's financial well-being. And here's what Americans need to know. Social Security will be broke within a decade. Politicians have no credible plan to fix it. And the longer they wait, choosing to vilify their colleagues instead of working with them, the higher the cost will be for all but the oldest Americans. Now, according to the trustees, Social Security's old age retirement program will run out of money in 2033. Now, that means that anyone who is 57 or younger today won't receive a single full benefit. And all Social Security beneficiaries, whether 67 or 107, will be subject to 23% across the board benefit cuts in 2020 and 2033 and beyond. Now, that will mean a loss of more than $5,000 per year in annual benefits for a typical retiree. Now, that's the status quo that any politician who refuses to discuss Social Security reform supports by default. Now, the trustees also reported that Social Security's 75-year 
unfunded obligations increased by $2 trillion to $22 trillion, which means each household share of Social Security shortfall is now $172,000. That's a $15,000 increase since last year alone. A trustee's summary presentation provided to Hill staff noted a worsening economic outlook contributing to Social Security's deterioration. Since the assumptions for last year's report were set, the trustees have reassessed their expectations for the economy in light of recent developments, including updated data on inflation and output, and have revised down the levels of gross domestic product and labor productivity by about 3% over the projection period. So I guess I'll just never retire. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, a classic interview with Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll also talk about the Marine, the former Marine filmmaker's sub-biblical drama out in theaters now, His Only Son, The story is about Abraham and Isaac and relates it to the events that we celebrate during this Holy Week. Well, believe it or not, former President Donald Trump confirmed he would leave Florida Resort on Monday. He's now done that to travel to New York City, where he will appear in court on Tuesday following his indictment. On Tuesday morning, I will be going to, believe it or not, the courthouse. America was not supposed to be this way, the former president said. The details of his indictment will be are still unknown, rather, because they are under seal until the arraignment takes place tomorrow. The charges are likely to relate to Trump's alleged hush money scandal, and there are expected to be some 30 uh, counts. Trump's lawyer, Joe uh, Tacopinas told CNN host Dana Bash on Sunday that he expects to make a motion to dismiss all charges. Americans graded President Biden's performance as his approval rating plummets. Biden's approval rating sunk from 45 percent to 38 percent, according to a March 23rd Associated Press Nork Center survey of more than a thousand adults. By comparison, his approval hit a record low of 36 percent in July after inflation hit a 40 year high. Biden nominee privately boasted about using the position to push climate policies of the president's Nominee to lead a little-known Department of Transportation Safety sub-agency privately boasted that she would use her position at the agency to push aggressive climate policies. Ann Carlson, an environmental law expert who Biden nominated in February to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration administrator, boasted in 21 that she was recruited by the administration to oversee climate standards for cars and trucks, according to emails obtained by the watchdog group Government Accountability and Oversight. With agenda-obsessed banks collapsing, collapsing rather, a new and constant threat of winter and summer electricity blackouts and an absentee transportation secretary waving off disasters when he isn't ignoring them, even the most blinkered White House might discern a sign that just maybe government appointments are jobs with responsibilities rather than taxpayer-financed activist platforms. Chris Horner, a lawyer who represented GAO in a case involving the emails. President Biden still hasn't visited East Palestine one month after saying he would at some point. Apparently, we haven't yet reached that point. Well, the Trump campaign announced on Friday evening that it had hauled in some $4 million in fundraising following the indictment announcement. The campaign touted the grassroots nature of the donation with an average contribution of $38 and that a quarter of the money came from first-time donors to the Trump campaign. 
Word of his indictment came on the eve of the final day of fundraising in the first quarter of the year, and the surge in contributions should boost the former president's campaign cash numbers when they're likely uh, revealed in the coming days. Uh, Trump is expected and is now in New York, but his uh, arraignment is Tuesday after a Manhattan grand jury voted to indict him. The indictment uh, firmly puts the 2024 spotlight back on the former president where he wants it and will make it uh, more difficult for any of his rivals to gain traction, effectively freezing Trump's position as the clear frontrunner during the early legs of the primary battle. While DeSantis remains on the 2024 sidelines, he expected to uh, launch a campaign later this spring or summer and is seen as Trump's top rival for the nomination. The rumor that Trump was going to be indicted by the district attorney in Manhattan has helped him Quite a bit among Republican primary voters, says Republican pollster Darren Shaw, who conducts surveys with Democrat Chris Anderson earlier this week ahead of the indictment news reported. They view the case as politically motivated and it uh, reanimates feelings that Trump is still fighting forces they see as corrupt and out of control. Democrat lawmakers are defending TikTok as Congress works to ban the controversial app. And Russia is taking the U.N. Security Council's top spot, which is being considered a propaganda win for Vladimir Putin. The Wall Street Journal reporter imprisoned in Russia is being hailed by colleagues for his charisma and courage. I'm not sure that will help him there, but efforts are being made to get him released. The New York Times lost its verified checkmark on Sunday after Twitter CEO Elon Musk announced efforts to crack down on users avoiding payments for Twitter Blue. Musk, along with the official Twitter verified account, announced on March 23rd that the social media company would set a deadline of April 1st for verified users to apply and keep their status. Those who refuse to pay the $8 per month subscription for individuals or $1,000 a month for organizations would begin to lose both their blue check mark and verified status. In a tweet reply, Musk revealed that this could include the New York Times should it refuse to pay for a subscription. Shortly afterward, the publication's main Twitter account lost its verified status. Americans are frightened by a shock poll on the diminishing importance of traditional values. And a Michigan fourth grader who was teased at school set a world record with her size 10.5 feet. The U.S. Armed Forces have one mission to protect our nation from foreign enemies. Our troops are um, as committed to this mission as ever before, but according to a bracing new report... Our warriors' ability to do their job is being undermined by civilian leaders more interested in woke indoctrination and partisan politics than warfighting readiness. The report of the National Independent Panel of Military Service and Readiness is an urgent warning about creeping politicization at the Pentagon and its corrosive impact on America's national defense. As the report details, the administration's whole-of-government embrace of woke politics is becoming a dangerous distraction for servicemen and women who signed up to protect, defend, and not virtue signal. The top-line statistics compiled in the report are jarring. Last year, the Army missed its uh, recruiting goal by 25%. They expect this year to be even worse. The Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps They began the uh, new fiscal year in October, 50 percent below their normal recruiting numbers. Public confidence in the military is falling precipitously, and even military families from which most recruits come are less likely to recommend military life. Donations to Donald Trump's campaign surpassed $4 million, and Secretary Blinken demands Russia release two American prisoners. The Secretary of State 
uh, urged his Russian counterpart in a rare phone call between the diplomats since the Ukraine war to immediately release a Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained last week, as well as another imprisoned American, Paul Whelan. The State Department said on Sunday, Blinken called for his immediate release. His singular, although mentioning the other detainee. President Biden is refusing to meet with Speaker McCarthy to discuss the debt ceiling. Tensions boiled over this week between the White House and House Speaker McCarthy, with both refusing to blink amid an impasse on the budget and debt ceiling. McCarthy pressed the president to start more robust negotiations over raising the nation's borrowing limit ahead of the Congressional Budget Act. The April 15th deadline, marking the first major step in weeks on the issue. Biden suggested there's little point in a sit down until House Republicans introduce a formal budget, which he called on them to do before the Easter recess. DHS uh, Secretary Mayorkas is refusing to call the border situation a crisis. The Homeland Security Secretary refused to call the ongoing situation there a crisis in an interview, claiming that admitting the situation was a crisis would indicate the withdrawal from our mission. Mayorkas was asked during an interview with 60 Minutes whether he viewed the ongoing situation at the border, which saw a record 1.7 million migrant encounters in 21 and more than 2.3 million in 2022 as a crisis. I view it as a significant challenge, Mayorkas said, echoing the answer he has given to that question on multiple occasions. 6.1 plus million migrants entering the country illegally have crossed the border since Biden took office, but Biden Homeland Security Secretary declines to call it a crisis. A conservative activist was assaulted by a trans activist, but law enforcement has taken the side of the activist who assaulted the conservative activist. Hope you can follow that. Well, um, popular conservative activist Billboard Chris appeared to be violently assaulted by aggressive activists at a pro-trans rally in Vancouver, Canada. Though police seemed to break up the assault after it began, the conservative activist stated the Vancouver PD did nothing to keep the militant ra- uh, trans rally goers from assaulting him beyond making sure he wasn't injured more in the attack. He also spoke to one of the officers monitoring the rally that day who argued that both sides were at fault, pushing back on the uh, claim that he was peacefully protesting at the rally. President Biden is looking to ban incandescent light bulbs. The administration is preparing to implement a sweeping nationwide ban on commonly used light bulbs as part of its energy efficiency and climate agenda. The regulations which prohibit retailers from selling incandescent light bulbs were finalized by the Department of Energy back in April of 2022 and are slated to go into effect August 1st, 2023. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is the producer, Dave King engineering this afternoon. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Robert Sirico, the author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll also talk about a former Marine who's become a filmmaker and has produced the biblical drama His Only Son in theaters this Holy Week. It's a story about Abraham and Isaac explaining the significance in light of this Holy Week. That's coming up uh, in the latter part of this hour. Well, DHS will allow immigrant applicants to select the gender of their choosing without providing additional documentation. Homeland Security's legal uh, immigration agency will now allow applicants to select 
who they want to be, regardless of who they actually are. Those who already have records in the system can also change their previous election without the need of proof. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service said the only exception is for someone who's already a citizen, in which case proof will be required. USCIS announced the change Friday, and it was effective immediately. Eight bodies were found along the northern border attempting illegally to immigrate into the United States. The bodies of eight people, among them at least one young child, were found on Thursday in the St. Lawrence River in Quebec. The the police said on Friday a deadly ending to what the authorities called an illegal migrant crossing from Canada to the United States. There were heavy winds on Wednesday right along the river when it was believed the migrants tried to cross, and that uh, likely played a role in their deaths. Italy has banned the use of chat GPT over privacy concerns. Italy has become the first Western country to block advanced uh, chatbot chat GPT. The Italian Data Protection Authority said there were privacy concerns relating to the model, which was uh, created by U.S. startup OpenAI and is backed by Microsoft. The regulator said it would ban and investigate OpenAI with immediate effect. OpenAI told the BBC it complied with the uh, privacy laws. Millions of people have used ChatGPD, uh, T rather, since it launched in November of last year. It can answer questions using natural human-like language, and it can also mimic other writing styles using the Internet as it was in 2021 as its database. Microsoft has spent billions of dollars on it, and it was added to Bing last month. There have been concerns about potential risks of artificial intelligence, including its uh, threat to jobs and spending um, and spreading misinformation and bias. President Biden ripped anti-transgender attacks, as he put it, in what can only be described as gaslighting. The president on Friday, a day he declared Trans Day of Visibility, blasted Republicans and conservatives for violence and attacks against the transgender community. Nowhere in his remarks did the president address the recent attack perpetrated by a woman who identified as a trans man against Covenant School. Now, she doesn't represent every trans person, neither does uh, every violent act represent a conservative, but the president didn't make that distinction. Instead, Biden continued to spin the false narrative that transgender people are under attack, pointing to recent laws passed in Republican-controlled states aimed at protecting children from exposure to sexually explicit material and medical abuse, and erroneously claiming that there is a crisis of violence against transgender people. Claremont Institute spokesperson Nick Short corrected the president. This should be a day of visibility for the Christian victims of the trans shooter. Why is it that Democrats increasingly dismiss actual incidences of violence while at the same time bemoaning language as violence? A male weightlifter trolled men in female uh, sports in an apparent effort to confront the blatant uh, lunacy, as he put it, of transgender males being allowed to compete in female sports. Canadian powerlifter Avi Silverberg temporarily identified as a woman in order to shatter the women's bench press record. Silverberg didn't even bother to shave. He sported a full beard as he identified as a she, decimating the record that had been previously set by another male transgender powerlifter. Criminalizing memes, according to a U.S. attorney press release, Douglas Mackey was convicted by a federal jury in Brooklyn of the charge of conspiracy against rights stemming from his scheme to deprive individuals of their constitutional right to vote. What was Mackey's crime? Well, back in 2016, Mackey, who was a Donald Trump supporter, posted several tweets mocking Hillary Clinton, including one that read, avoid the line, vote from home, text Hillary to 59925, vote for Hillary and be a part of history, end quote. 
Anyone with an ounce of civic knowledge would have recognized the post as a parody, but evidently the Justice Department had no such common sense, at least when it comes to conservatives. Mackey faced a 10-year prison sentence for daring to make a joke, further demonstrating that um, this has everything to do with his political views. The Department of Justice has simply shrugged at several Clinton supporters who engaged in the same type of election parody misinformation in 2016. To make matters worse, the Department of Justice was unable to provide evidence that anyone was deceived by the meme. This was clearly a politically motivated prosecution that has um, stomping all over the First Amendment. Mackey's lawyer promises to appeal. The um, so-called QAnon shaman has been freed after serving over two years of a three-year and three-and-a-half-year prison sentence. Jacob Chansley, who was dubbed the QAnon shaman following the January 6th Capitol riot, has been released 14 months early. School versus parents. Parents in Maryland are fit to be tied after being informed they're not allowed to pull their children out of the gender identity lessons. Montgomery County Public Schools recently notified parents that, in an effort to be a more inclusive environment, schools would no longer inform parents of any gender identity curriculum. And furthermore, parents cannot opt their children out of these lessons. The email to parents read, in part, as is standard practice, when planning for instruction, teacher schools are encouraged to utilize a variety of resources to continue to promote an inclusive environment as outlined by the MCPS core values and board policy. Students and families may not choose to opt out of engaging with and instructional materials. Former President Trump is pumped for the press conference after his arraignment in New York on Tuesday. Justice Department and FBI investigators have amassed Fresh evidence pointing to possible obstruction by former President Donald Trump in the investigation into top secret documents found at his Mar-a-Lago home, according to people familiar with the matter. The additional evidence comes as investigators have used emails and text messages from a former Trump aide to help understand key moments last year. A federal judge blocked a Tennessee law banning minors from drag shows and Women's History Month wraps up with a bevy of honors for transgender figures, also known as men. Half of the U.S. investigators fell ill while studying the East Palestine train derailment, and the Department of Justice is suing Norfolk Southern for alleged environmental violations in the East Palestine derailment. So-called pandemic pounds have pushed 10,000 U.S. Army soldiers into obesity, and OPEC Plus announced a surprise oil production cut That could lead to higher prices at the pump, as high as $5 plus per gallon. Social Security trustees forecast significant deterioration, 23% benefit cuts in just 10 years. Ivy League tuition nears $90,000 annually as college costs soar. And Bragg's office backed off of an initial attempted uh, murder charge of a New York City garbage hauler and a gun battle with an alleged thief. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, a conversation with Robert Sirico. He's the author of The Economics of the Parables. We'll also talk about the new film, His Only Son, airing this Holy Week. It's a story of Abraham and Isaac, produced by filmmaker uh, who was also a former Marine. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, millennia before the advent of streaming services or television, even YouTube, 
Jesus's parables have inspired and guided people of all cultures, of every age and background. In these strikingly original stories, my next guest, Reverend Robert Sirico, uh, proves that there is indeed something new to say about the world's most familiar stories. The book is titled The Economics of the Parables. It ignites a conversation about the eternal truths about God and man that can be gleaned from Jesus' stories about our economic life, from wages to inheritances. While the book is an essential read for any person looking for spiritual wisdom applicable to daily economic life. Now, with inflation and a looming recession, these are lessons we would all do well to heed. While the Reverend Robert Sirico, he received his Master's of Divinity degree from the Catholic University of America, following undergraduate study at the University of Southern California and the University of London. During his studies and early ministry, he experienced a growing concern over the lack of training religious studies students receiving fundamental economic principles. Well, leaving them uh, poorly equipped to understand and address today's social problems. Well, as a result of these concerns, Father uh, Sirico, he co-founded the Acton Institute with uh, Chris Almond Maureen in 1990. He is president emeritus of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, retired pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and Sacred Heart Academy, a local parish school which uh, he co-founded as a Catholic classical Academy in 2013. He joins us now to talk about his uh, most recent book, The Economics of the Parables. Thank you so much for joining us. Eugene, delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. I think when we read the parables of Jesus, we recognize there is an aspect to many of them that that might uh, read uh, the economics, but we may not fully glean his entire purpose. Talk a little bit about um, what inspired you to write this book uh, on the parables, focusing on the economics and the conversations you hope this will spark? Well, I, I suppose it, it comes from years of preaching. I mean, I'm a preacher. And so if you're a preacher, you've preached on the parables at some point. And of course, lots of people know many of the parables. Uh, but I also work in the field of economics. So uh, a lot of my work has been done through the Acton Institute. Uh, talking about basic economic principles. So as I was preaching on the Gospels, I began to see these assumptions that Jesus has about things like private property, like uh, contracts and things along those lines. And I began, I I suppose you could see this book as an effort at translating back and forth from the world of business and the world of theology. And what I found is that our logical understanding of the parables is enriched by our economic understanding of what the world was like. I'm not saying that the purpose of the parables was to teach economics. What I'm saying is that there's a presumption at the base of it that views merchants as good things, that even uh, you know luxury items have a place in the world. Uh, so it, it was really... A, a, eye-opening for me to study it in that depth with both of those disciplines going on at once. You write of your uh, your book, my effort is to detect the universal <clears throat> economic assumptions that play within the stories themselves, while at the same time acknowledging that the assumptions are not themselves the core intent, moral, or goal of the parables, and that from time to time Jesus turns such assumptions on their head to make his point. Yeah. He makes several points in the process of telling a story to uh, to teach a, a principle to his hearers. Yes. Uh, I mean, of course, the parables themselves, the, 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 
the literary form of a parable is so intriguing because you're telling a story and you're leaving certain things unsaid in the story, which really invites the listener into it more deeply. But you're also able to speak to a wide variety of an audience so that if you're telling a parable, a child can understand it and a scientist can Mm -hmm. understand it and everything in between. And we've all experienced this, you know, just in seeing how captivating the parables are to even to children. And yet they're profound truths that are coming across in them. That's also what gives them their uh, enduring power. You said that right at the beginning, how now 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this. I mean, Georgine, wouldn't it be wonderful to think that 50 years after you're gone, people are going to be listening to your radio interviews and say, what what great insight. <laughs> None of us really think that we're going to be remembered at that level years and years after we're gone. We're talking 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about the parables of Jesus. Yeah. It's a it's an amazing thing. Now, how does your book fit into your work of educating people on the theology uh, or how theology relates to economics? And uh, again, this is such a an important topic. We would do well to glean everything Scripture has to say, and particularly the parables. Sure. Well, uh, let's begin with uh, my definition of economics, because economics, somebody once called it the dismal science. Uh, our eyes kind of glaze over when we hear anybody, they're going to tell us about percentages and math and equations and uh, all of the rest of it, use use very specific terminology to refer to things. Uh, and yet what economics is, in my understanding of it, is almost inevitable when you live in a world of scarcity. We live in a world that's bound by space and time. We come into existence at one point, and we go out of life at another point. We are confronted by the scarcity of the resources that we have available to us in addition to time. And yet all of this is the world into which Jesus Christ came. He entered human form, really, substantially. He becomes a human being in everything, the Scripture says, other than sin. He's like us. So he gets tired. He has to worry about food. He has to worry about fishing and productivity. And he uses all of these metaphors from the world in which he was living, productivity, you know, uh, production, uh, agriculture, uh, all of these different kinds of things. And what all of that does, in the same way that Jesus Christ reveals the fullness of God in the middle of a material world by becoming incarnate and one of us, I think that the economics can reveal to us something about God. If it does nothing more than tell us something about our limitation and the fact that we need to orient ourselves to something higher than this world, that's something. But also, inscribed in the human heart is this almost uh, quenchless desire that we each have. We all desire more than we can ever attain. Even when we attain something that we wanted very much, we find ourselves desiring more. And the problem is that many people end up trying to fulfill that desire in ways that are detrimental to our spirituality, to our humanity. And what all of this can teach us is that we have to have a heart for God because that's what's missing. We desire eternity because we're made for eternity. Mm. Well, one of the most familiar parables and one that you cover in the economics of the parables is the uh, parable of the talents. 
Uh, We think we understand the basic idea that we're supposed to be good stewards over what God has entrusted to us. But what are some of the economic presumptions of this parable and what is the lesson that we should glean from it? Well, yes, I mean, this is one of the rich ones, one of the things that people remember uh, about parables in general. Uh, Let me just point out one insight into this. As as I was reading it, both with my economic hat on and my pastor's hat on, is the perception of the third man who receives the one talent and buries it and then complains to the master. And his perception of who the master is tells us a whole lot. And it, it has both a kind of moral dimension to it, but it also has an economic dimension. He says to the master, well, you know, I knew that you were a hard man, sowing where you have not reaped, uh, or reaping where you have not sowed, and gathering where you have not scattered. In other words, you haven't planted, and yet you can gather. Uh, and, And so I did the safest thing I knew. I buried my talent. Now, That tells us something both on the spiritual level, because this man is talking to the master who is the image of Christ, and his resentment against the graciousness of God in entrusting to us our talents when we fail to utilize what we've been given. But it also gives us an economic insight, because really, when I read that, I thought, this is exactly the attitude that uh, socialists have about economic productivity. They think that people who uh, have uh, are entrepreneurs who are investing in things uh, somehow gather where they have not scattered, that they're getting an advantage having put nothing into it, or where they have uh, reaped where they haven't sown, that there's some injustice that's going on. And, and the way this servant speaks to the master uh, tells me something. Also, the converse of that is to think about these other two uh, servants who are entrusted and who risk. And every action of productivity involves some kind of risk. And whatever way in which this is another thing about the talents, we don't know all the details about how do they make that money. We're really not sure. Uh, and that's what enables us to kind of dream and speculate and apply the lessons that are learned in our own circumstances. But however they did it, they did it by risking, just the way the master risked in in trusting his talents. Because while the one didn't produce anything, he just hid it, it was a risk for the master to give him that in the first place because he could have lost it. And these other men could have lost the investment that they had been given. And so um, I think this is this is part of the real challenge and and the gift that we have uh, in in the um, uh, in the parables of the talent. We're talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. I get that right. The book is titled "The Economics of the Parables" and it is uh, published by Regnery. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The book we're talking about, The Economics of the Parables, and the Reverend Robert Sirico uh, is the author. He pulls back the veil of modernity to reveal the timeless economic wisdom of the parables. Thirteen simple but very profound stories. It includes the parable of the talents, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the uh, laborers in the vineyard, the unjust steward, and the prodigal. They're all filled with lessons about caring for the poor, for stewardship wealth, uh, passing down inheritances, and much, much more. The economics of the parables. Again, the book published by Regnery. Now, in writing these stories, you challenge us to think perhaps more broadly about uh, the message, the messages that Jesus is teaching as he's delivering these parables, not only for the hearers that are present with him at the time, but for generations to follow who would read those parables and look for wisdom in how to conduct uh, conduct themselves. Let's talk about one of these uh, parables, um, the uh, the laborers in the vineyard, where, again, the, the subject of fairness is um, is brought up. What do we learn from that parable, the laborers in the vineyard, uh, that would teach us something about economics? Well, you know, uh, right off the bat, uh, what I was thinking as I was kind of looking at the book again, uh, I wish that it was a little later that I was writing it because what I would have brought in was the whole confrontation that we are having to this day of the shortage of labor. I mean, we're, mm. we're all experiencing this in restaurants and everywhere we're going, we, the whole uh, – supply chain disruption, a lot to do with people not being available for work. And isn't this exactly what the master or the owner of that vineyard confronts when he sees a harvest in front of him that he could lose or could lose a substantial portion of it? And what would be the effects of that? Just imagine for a moment the effects of the loss of that harvest from an economic perspective. Well, it would have been the loss to his own estate, first and foremost. But then it would have also been the loss of the supply of the goods that were produced in that vineyard for all of those who depended upon them. So if the harvest uh, was only, let's say, a half, then in order to compensate for the loss, the price would have had to have gone up. So you have the whole question of supply and demand that plays into a loss of harvest. This gives us a sense of the urgency of this owner of the vineyard in trying to find laborers to go into the vineyard. And then we come to the workers themselves. They're hired at various stages during the day. And I think what's very important here, and this is where the moral question comes in, at each stage, he agrees with them upon a certain wage. Even in the middle of the day and late in the day, when he goes and he hires these workers to just work for a few more hours, he says, I'll pay you whatever is just. You just go in and do this work for me and I'll just pay you. And they all agree to this. So that it's a mutually beneficial contract on the part of both of them. Now, you can imagine that those at the beginning of the day who were looking for work were glad that they had a day's worth of work. And the amount that he was paying was the usual daily wage. But those later in the day were especially grateful because they hadn't worked all day. And they thought, you know, I'm going to have to go home to my family and I'm not going to have anything to show for the day. So they go and maybe they think they're going to get half the day's wage, but that's better than nothing. And then, of course, the great reversal takes place. And this sense of reversal, this dramatic reversal, uh, it doesn't just occur in this gospel. I'm thinking it also occurs in the rich man and Lazarus, which is another one that has uh, real implications. But in this one, 
the last shall become first and the first shall become last. The master, the, the owner of the harvest, says, let's, let's uh, pay those who came last. And they're paid the usual wage. Now, the other guys are standing around thinking, well, if they've got the usual wage, then we're going to get more. And they come and they get the same. And here's where the moral lesson uh, becomes so clear. Their presumption, their perspective on the part of the laborer, or I'm sorry, on the part of the uh, owner of the vineyard changes. Whereas they saw him as their benefactor, they now see him as their enemy. And he says one of the most astute lines, and again, this refutes the whole Marxist collectivist uh, concept of economics. He said, did we not agree on the, on the wage before you worked? Yes. And didn't I pay you that? Yes. Am I not free to do what I want with my own property? Yes. And of course, as I say, the purpose of the, the parable is not to teach us about economics. It's to teach us about God and salvation. And of course, what does this say to us? It says to us that salvation can't be purchased, that we don't really earn it, that we, we come to Christ and he offers us his grace. And if someone comes later, you know, there's the, the story of the prodigal son, which is also, by the way, uh, in, the, in this book, mm-hmm. uh, where the older son is resentful of the younger son being received back. And it's this kind of attitude that you see here. We see it on the cross with the good thief next to Jesus, and Jesus puts him into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you know, he didn't do anything. All he did at the last moment was say, remember me. And so, you know, it's, it's this weaving of these economic presuppositions, these basic things, and the, the truths of the kingdom of heaven that spring out from it that I find so uh, exhilarating. Let me ask you in the few minutes that we have left, what does the scripture tell us about distributing inheritance? I think parents are often concerned about how to uh, distribute or to pass along um, their wealth without harming uh, future generations. Does the scripture teach us, are there parables that teach us about uh, inheritance that might be helpful? Well, I think one of the most, one of the first things uh, about inheritance uh, is not the economic question, but the moral question of the formation of the the child, uh, the, the son or the daughter, and how they are going to handle their responsibilities. That's the first and foremost. In the story of the um, the prodigal son, of mm-hmm. course, we see these two sons, uh, both of whom have a distorted perception of property. The young son, it's very obvious how distorted his perception because he just wants it and he runs. Uh, and the father's hands-offness with him. He says, oh, you want the property? Here it is. Let's see what you're going to do with it. And the second son, though, has a similar view to the younger son. We think the, you know, the older son is he's at home and he's toiling for his dad. And isn't he a loyal and wonderful son? But really, he's only seeing his father uh, in terms of the property that the father is given, because he says to him in the end, "You know, I've been with you all this time. You've never even given me. You never let me have fun with my friends and party with my friends. And now you're killing the fatted calf for." for your son who's wasted all your money. 
uh, and he sees his father in material terms, in the same way that the younger son saw the father. And of course, this is really the, the story, not of the prodigal son, this is the, the story of the loving father, because he, he loves equally both of his sons and invites them to come back. Both of them are invited to come back. The young son, when he sees him and runs down the road to greet him, but also the older son at the end, he invites him to come in to the party. Now, we don't know if he does or not. And that's that's one of those open-ended things that make the parable so vibrant. He says, now, you come in. I want to reconcile you and your brother together. So I think in terms of the principles, I, I've spoken to many people who have, you know, estates. Some of them say, you know, I'm, not, I'm leaving my children a certain share of the estate, but not enough to disable them. Because if they live off of me, then they don't ever have the capacity to produce for themselves and to know the dignity of production in the way that I learned it, you know, the, the, the benefactor, the father, the mother uh, who produced the wealth in the first place. This is a real problem in philanthropy because we see people who live big, leave big estates with certain intentions for the use of those resources, like say the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust. Those founders who invested that money and made the money had a very different philosophy than the people who are administering those foundations today. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a real responsibility that, uh, that wealthy people have, or really anybody has, in terms of how you can enable or disable the people you're going to leave the money to. Well, once again, we've been talking with the Reverend Robert Sirico. The book is The Economics of the Parables, and you gleaned so much from them. I really appreciated uh, the the depth to which you went to help us recognize that aspect of these timeless uh, parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. And for people who are interested in learning more about um, the Acton Institute, what's the best way for them to connect? Uh, Acton.org. Acton.org, and they can go on there. There's just a whole bunch of material that we have at every level, uh, including films, including books, essays, conferences, and the the like. So we'd love to have them. And the book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, the Reverend Robert Sirico, The Economics of the Parables. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the director of the biblical drama based on the story of Abraham and Isaac, he's made a film that really he believes will be the start of a career for him and perhaps greater insight for those who view it. Well, the story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the most Uh, challenging stories in the Bible, but that's exactly what drew this filmmaker, David Helling, to it. Well, his feature debut film you may have heard about, His Only Son, it depicts the account of Abraham's three-day journey up Mount Moriah to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering, as explained in Genesis. Well, Helling is a former U.S. Marine, and he explained how his love for the Bible grew while he was serving overseas during the Iraq War. Now he's made it his life's mission to bring Scripture to the big screen, this being his debut. Well, he understands how the tests that God gave to Abraham troubles believers and non-believers alike. 
but he hopes that audiences come away from the film with a better understanding of the significance behind one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. In in reality, one of the most um, controversial accounts in Scripture, it's a point of contention, he says, for many non-believers, for many believers as well. It's a Scripture they don't really know how to defend How come God or how would he ask this man to lay his own son down? I want to dig into scripture and pull out the truth of what God was doing there, Helling uh, said in a recent interview. And while the film illustrates the Genesis 22 passage, it also flashes back to years and events preceding that moment where God had given Abraham a monumental promise. Abraham is reliving through flashback all the promises of God throughout his life as he and his wife Sarah had to wait for that son that God had promised. Remember that? Waiting. Well, Biblical scholars believe Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later in the same place. Helling said he hopes audiences see how Abraham's story is relevant to Christ's death and resurrection in the Gospels. He writes that in the Lord's testing of his faith, he had a very clear purpose in it. He was showing Abraham something, that memorial stone of sorts. This event is in, in Abraham's life was going to echo through the millennia until the point when God would lay down his only son on the same mount. Helling says, I want people to see this and see, wow, the Lord had his redemptive plan. It's been in place since before the beginning. Well, Helling in a recent interview uh, said that um, uh, he it, the film took him five and a half years to complete due to pandemic-related delays and actor conflicts, but it's been produced. And while he admitted the delays were discouraging at times, the filmmaker saw the bright side of having more time to complete the project and to do it well. Working on it for a long time for free essentially has given me the time to polish the film where it stands up to a big screen presentation, he says. Besides directing, he also edited the movie. Well, the film will play in theaters worldwide. It began on the 31st of last month. Angel Studios, the platform behind the hit biblical drama series The Chosen, crowdfunded for his only son and said it was the first time a theatrical release had been crowdfunded in entertainment history. A three-week campaign to make the film um, broke records, far surpassing its $400,000 goal. Well, little did we know, little did they know when they uh, released the campaign to raise the marketing costs, it would reach the full cap of what they could raise, which was $1.235 million in less than 100 hours. Helling, again, the director points out, the film also conveys the hopeful message that God has a purpose in our pain. For those of us that are in Christ, for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose, we can have confidence that even in our darkest night, in our darkest season, and the most wretched hurts that we have, the Lord has a purpose in it, and he's working it for our good. He reminds uh, the viewers of his film. Reflecting on the Easter season uh, release and audiences' uh, hunger for faith films, he believes uh, all the struggles to get the movie made were part of God's perfect timing. It seems like Christ is on the uh, is on the minds and the mouths of so many people around the country and around the world, and it's like, wow, this film could not have um, come out at a better time. And again, this was years, 5.5 years in the making, much later than he had originally anticipated. It just shows uh, we couldn't have planned it. We couldn't have done this. This was all the working of the Lord himself. So again, his only son available in theaters through this Holy Week season. 
Well, in other news, Jessica Bates was driving to work in southwest Oregon when she heard a Christian radio broadcast that she said caused a really strong nudge in her spirit. It was the story of a single dad who had adopted a child. Well, she's a single mother of five. She felt a calling from God to do the same. It was, she said, a four-word message. Those are my children. It was like, oh, I didn't see this coming, but I feel like I need to do something. While Bates' Christian faith is the reason she felt called to adopt in the first place, that same faith is the reason she's not being allowed to, according to a lawsuit filed on Monday against leaders of the Oregon Department of Human Services in federal uh, in a federal court. According to the lawsuit, state officials denied Bates' application to adopt, not because of a lack of financial resources or any history of abuse or neglect, but because she acknowledged that her Christian faith informs her that gender and sex aren't a choice. She was also denied because she said she would be unwilling to use pronouns that don't align with the child's sex or to take a child to an appointment to receive cross-sex hormone treatments. Bates and her lawyers argue that the state's adoption rules and regulations specifically around the mandated beliefs around sexual orientation and gender identity clearly violate her First Amendment rights to free speech and to freely exercise her religion. Pronouns and words that you use, those carry a message. The ADF lawyer representing her said, Johannes Adelphanes, in, the, um, in this case, they're forcing her to affirm the message that you uh, can choose your gender and that gender can be different from your biological sex, which violates her religious beliefs, but it also compels her to speak a message that she disagrees with. The state uh, requiring her to embrace that message if she moves forward with an adoption. They're putting Jessica to a choice. Abandon your faith if you want to adopt children or forego even having the opportunity to receive a child in your home. Well, Bates, a widow and an ultrasound technician at a hospital in Ontario, Oregon, already has five biological children. Their ages range from 10 to 17 with her deceased husband, Dave. She became a widow in January of 2017 when a man who had recently been released from a state hospital abducted his wife, fled from police in a pickup and crashed into the car while she and her husband were driving to work. Well, the couple's youngest child had just turned four at the time. Bates, who attends a non-denominational church and reads the Bible every day, credited her strong Christian faith and a wonderful support system for helping her to persevere. And while many people would likely be overwhelmed by the task of raising five kids, As a single parent, she says uh, one day at a time is her philosophy. She would love to add to that number, but the state of Oregon thus far has denied her that opportunity because of her Christian faith. We'll continue to follow this story. My guess is it will take some time before there's a a hearing of any kind uh, related to um, to this lawsuit. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, uh, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds. 
like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on local now, channel 525.